Awesome. Well, we took a little bit of extra time right there, but I think it's good for us to pray for our nation. I find myself getting a little bit emotional when we do that. We've got a lot to be thankful for this morning. Well, hey, we're getting into a brand new series today called Balance. And I have the privilege and really the responsibility of bringing this message today. And God put some stuff on my heart a few weeks ago for today and for the next couple of weeks. And I'm very much looking forward to sharing this message with you today as we talk about balance. You know, there are a handful of topics throughout Scripture that sometimes get out of balance. And what I mean by that specifically is there are topics that sometimes become controversial within the body of Christ. And I think it's not a good thing, or I think it's unhealthy when the church tends to lean on controversy continually. Here at the Bridge, if you've been around for a while, I hope that you know we are not a church that that strives for controversy every week. But there are topics sometimes in Scripture that get a little bit controversial. And sometimes the biggest reason why is because they just get taken out of balance, or they get out of balance within the body of Christ. And often what will happen is a specific topic will be taught in the body of Christ, and it'll be taken to the extreme, and maybe even abused a little bit. And then maybe that same topic on the other side of the pendulum, the other side of the spectrum, can be neglected and not talked about at all, and we pretend as though it doesn't exist. So there has to be a healthy balance if we want to walk out a healthy Christian life. So that's what we're going to be talking about in these three messages over these next three weeks. And today, I have the great privilege of talking to you about a a subject that's not controversial at all, and that's the topic of prosperity. Prosperity. If I were to ask the average American citizen who invented the automobile, most of us would probably say Henry Ford. And the reason we think that is because we're Americans and we love to give ourselves credit even for the things that we didn't do. We're quite proud of ourselves. But here's the deal. Henry Ford actually had his own take on the automobile but did not invent it himself. What Henry Ford is most known for is giving us the assembly line. He perfected the process of mass production of gas-powered or combustible engine, combustion engine automobiles. And while he didn't invent the automobile, there are actually two or three European men, German men, who are credited with actually inventing the automobile. You might recognize these names. One man was named Carl Friedrich Benz. Another, name, uh, another man was named Gottlieb Daimler. And Daimler had a partner or a collaborator in his project, and he was a man named Wilhelm Maybach. Now, for a lot of you, these name, names might not mean anything, but if you're into cars, you might know those three names really, really well. Because from Friedrich Benz, we get Mercedes-Benz. From Daimler, we get Daimler Automotive, which is today owned by the Land Rover Corporation. And of course, Maybach makes one of the most luxurious sedans in all of the world. And the reason I bring up these three names and focus on them for a moment is because when those three men each set out to create a gas-powered or combustion engine automobile, they simply had a new idea and a new vision for a means, everybody follow me with this word, a means of transportation. And by creating a gas-powered autonomous, let's see, what's the word I'm looking for? Autonomous automobile that one individual person could own no longer was somebody, you know, subject to horse and carriage or the steam-powered train. They could get in their own automobile, go at their own speed, and be on their own schedule. And it provided so much freedom, this new means of transportation. But what's amazing about it is if I say the names Mercedes-Benz, Daimler, or especially Maybach, we don't just think of simple means of transportation, we think of luxury transportation. And now, hold on a minute, because like, there's no judgment if you drove a Mercedes-Benz to church today, I don't have a problem with that. And in fact, you might have even drove a Maybach to church today. What's interesting about this is that I don't think Benz, Daimler, or Maybach could have imagined that the cars they created almost 150 years ago 
would look the way they do 150 years later. Not only that, but I don't think those three men could have possibly imagined that their cars would cost what they do 150 years later. Because a Maybach itself, MSRP on a 2023 Maybach, is anywhere from 190 to $225,000. You might be wondering, what's the threshold for calling a car expensive? If you can buy a house for that much in certain parts of the country, I think we can all agree that's a little bit expensive. But listen, if you did drive a Maybach to church today, you're not going to get any judgment from me, and here's why. Because I don't have to make the payment, you do. I don't have to pay to insure it, you do. I'm being joking when I say all that, but when it comes to judgment, can I just like throw a phrase out there? I actually made this up, and I'll give you permission to use it as well. If it's in your budget, then who am I to judge it? Because at the end of the day, I don't have to answer to God for how you handle your money, you do. And you don't have to answer to God, answer to God for how you handle my money, I do. Right? Can we all agree on that? And all of this leads us to a further conversation about prosperity. Now, I know I'm picking on cars for just a moment and staying there, but it's important that we understand something. Over time, a common means of transportation has evolved to where now we see cars as symbols of style and status, not just a means of transportation. Or another way of saying it is, isn't it interesting how even a car can become an end and no longer a means? And what ends up happening is when we don't just see it as a means of transportation, we see it as style and status, people start to live beyond their means, and when we live beyond our means, things get out of balance. Make sense? My favorite teacher I ever, and by the way, this is no condemnation if you got a nice car, I like a nice car just as much as the next guy. You got to work that out. It's not up to me, it's up to you. All of us have to work this stuff out between us and God, and can I just add here, Christians, let's stop being judgmental to one another. I got to walk it out and you got to walk it out. And ultimately, neither one of us are each other's judges. We're all going to be judged by God. And God is a much harsher judge if we're wrong than we are in our criticism. Make sense? So with all that said, here's the point. I had a sixth grade teacher. She was my favorite teacher that I ever had. Her name was Mrs. Trueblood. And if for any reason she were to be saying this, I just want you to know you were my favorite teacher. But Mrs. Trueblood, when she taught us English and grammar, she had this great phrase that I will always remember. She said, when you put the emphasis on the wrong syllable, everything comes out wrong. When you put the emphasis on the wrong syllable, everything comes out wrong. And she was teaching us that principle when it came to reading the English language. Can I tell you something? The exact same principle applies to us reading the Word of God. When we put the emphasis in the wrong place, our Christian walk can get way out of balance. So we have to make sure that we don't abuse what the Word of God says, and we don't neglect what the Word of God says. We have to come back to Scripture, find out what it says, and walk out a balanced, healthy walk with God. And the church said, (laughs) some of you didn't know that that's when you're supposed to say amen. Amen. All right. So I want to answer some questions or ask some questions and hopefully attempt to answer them today. And I promise we're not here for controversy, but let's just answer some questions today from Scripture when it comes to this topic of prosperity. First question I want to ask is this. Is prosperity biblical? The second word, second question is somebody's already got their mind made up. Second question is, is it more godly to live in poverty than prosperity? And the third question is, when I give, should I really expect to receive? So those are our three questions today. Let's start with the first one. Number one, if you're taking notes, is prosperity a biblical concept? If you got your Bible this morning, meet me in 1 John 
uh, excuse me, 3 John chapter 1. There's only one chapter in 3 John. But 3 John, this is John's third epistle, if you will. Now, when John wrote this, it was actually a personal letter, not really an epistle to the church, but it's included in the canon of Scripture. And John says something very interesting here in 3 John, actually in verse 2. Let's look at it. He says, Beloved, I pray that you may prosper, everybody say prosper, in all things and be in health. Whoa, 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 John. Haven't you watched preachers on YouTube? You can't pray for prosperity and health. What are you even talking about? He says it again in verse 2. Therefore, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. Everybody say prospers. Verse 3, for I rejoiced greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, just as you walk in the truth yourself. And then finally, verse 4, I have no greater joy, and notice these words, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in prosperity. What is that what he said right there? I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Can we just decide right here and now at the beginning of the message that walking in God's truth is so much greater than walking in man's prosperity? So a couple of things here that need to be focused on. And again, I'm going to have a lot of fun with this because we're going to swing both ways on this and mess with everybody's theology just a little bit here, okay? This is going to be fun. In 3 John, John is actually writing to a friend named Gaius who we know very little about. But Bible scholars tend to believe that he was either a wealthy or successful man. And so John's talking about him prospering right here. Not only that, but get this. This is the only place in the New Testament where the word prosper or prosperity shows up in the King James Bible. Only place. Nowhere else does the word prosper appear in the King James Bible in the New Testament. And that tells me two really, or a couple of really important things, probably three. Number one, we as human beings are really, really good at creating big doctrines around topics that Scripture has very little to say about. We are so good at doing this. I mean, I said this a second ago. You can go on YouTube and find a million different messages that are a mile wide but an inch deep because Scripture says very little about them. And we as humans are so good at building big doctrines when Scripture says very little about those things. And we're not going to name all of them, but man, so many of them come to mind. We as humans can make bigger things out of something that Scripture makes really only gives us a little bit of information about. Not only that, but watch this. Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy, and he says this about Scripture, okay? And we're asking the question, is prosperity biblical? He said that all Scripture is God-breathed, and it's good for doctrine, teaching, and correction. That's my abbreviated paraphrase of what Paul says there. He says that that's what Scripture is good for. It's good for doctrine, teaching, and correction. If John the Apostle prays a prayer for his friend Gaius, and he prays prosperity over his friend's life, then why can't you and I also pray prayers of prosperity over our own lives? I mean, I can't think of a good reason why. And we're going to talk more about what that word means here in just a moment. But the reason I'm pointing this out is because, I mean, when the authors or the, the, the people who put Scripture together, the early church fathers put Scripture together, they were so slow in making sure that they were specific about what went into the canon of Scripture. And when they included John's third epistle here, did they not recognize that John prayed a prayer of prosperity and even health over his friend? Because there's a million and one YouTube preachers that tell you you can't pray for that. But John just did it. 
And if John did it for his friend, let me ask you this question again. Why can't you and I pray that prayer for ourselves? Anybody else think that's a pretty interesting question? Why can't we do it? But what about this? If prosperity or being prosperous is wrong in the eyes of God, then why do we see the word prosper or prosperity show up almost 50 times in the entirety of the Bible? We just pointed to the one place it shows up in the New Testament, but get this, that word shows up 47 times in the Old Testament. The Bible talks a whole lot about this. Let me give you some examples. In four places in the book of Genesis alone, it shows us that God made Abraham and Joseph prosperous. Not only that, but in Deuteronomy and the book of Joshua, Moses told Joshua and the Israelites that if they kept their covenant with the Lord, he would make them prosperous. In fact, of the 47 times that the word prosper appears in the Old Testament, the vast majority of those scriptures speak to a promise from God that if his people will walk in his ways, they will be prosperous. That's the word in the Bible. Now, I know that that word has a lot of negative connotations today in the church world, but can I just tell you something? God doesn't care about what we think about what people say about that word today because he wasn't afraid to include it 47 times in the Old Testament, most of which talk about God prospering his people if they walked in his ways. Now, a lot of you are thinking, oh, Zach's about to get off on some real prosperity gospel here in a minute. Hold on. Stay with me because, like I said, we're going to swing the pendulum a little bit here because we're talking about balance, and that's what's most important. Here's some additional questions. So if God promises prosperity to his people under the old covenant, why would his promises be any different for his people under the new covenant? I mean, think about it. You guys are so quiet right now. This is great. My answer to that question is I don't think God's promises would be any different. If he promised to people in the Old Testament that they walked in his ways, they would be prosperous, then surely we can in the New Testament and New Covenant believe that if we, God's people now, walk in his ways, that he will still prosper us. That's what I see in Scripture. But let's keep going. There's just one really big problem in this conversation. We often have a very, very bad concept of what godly prosperity really is. And that's where the conversation takes a turn. Why? Because we usually associate American or earthly prosperity with godly prosperity. And let me tell you something, my friends. These two things are not always the same. The way our world defines prosperity is not the way God defines prosperity. And if we see the word prosperity in Scripture and say God wants to prosper me, but think it looks the same way that the world sees it, we are missing the point. Everybody with me so far? All right. The most common definition of prosperity throughout Scripture is simply this, to be successful or to be profitable. That's it. It's literally that vague. Prosperity means to be successful or to be profitable. And one reason why we don't always see this the same way is because success means different things to different people. Can we agree on that? Not all of us have the same definition of success. For example, for some people having $100 or $200 left over at the end of the month is success and a step in the right direction. For some, for some people to take on no more debt this month, to get out of debt, to see my finances move forward in the most incremental of ways is success and a step in the right direction. 
But for other people, your business netting $10 million in profits this year is a new level of success because success means different things to different people. And when we try to define it according to our standards or somebody else's standards or American standards or worldly standards, we can easily miss the mark of what godly prosperity is supposed to look like. So let's go back to where we started with this first question. Is prosperity a biblical idea? I think that we would be denying scripture to say no. My answer to that question is yes. God wants us to walk in his ways and he wants his people to prosper. The bigger question is, what does godly prosperity really look like? Is everybody with me so far? All right, I need you to be with me this morning, all right? Because I know this can be a controversial topic, but we're gonna swing the pendulum a little bit and we're gonna do our best to find some balance. So here's the second question I wanna ask. Is it more godly to live in poverty than to live in prosperity? Because when we start talking about prosperity, our minds automatically and quickly go to materialism. In an earthly sense, we look at material things and possessions and we say, well, if I accumulate possessions, am I becoming a worldly person rather than remaining a godly person? So is it better off that I detach myself from all that stuff and kind of take on a a mindset of poverty rather than prosperity? Is that more godly? And often that's the question that we will ask. And sometimes this topic can be taught to one of those two extremes. Look at what Jesus says. Listen, y'all, if we want to know the truth, who are we supposed to ask? Jesus. What did Jesus have to say about this? I love the way Jesus tried to bring balance and mess with everybody. Luke chapter 12, verse 32. Jesus says, do not fear, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And we know with the kingdom of God, we're talking about the here and the future. We're talking about the kingdom of God that is now and the kingdom of God that is to come in eternity. Verse 33, look at this. He says, so sell what you have and give alms. Provide yourselves money bags which do not grow old, a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In that last verse right there, what Jesus is saying is, listen, if you want to find where someone's heart is, just go look at where they put their treasure. It's easy to figure out. But look, you can easily look at this verse of scripture when Jesus says, sell your possessions and give alms. And you can look at that and say, well, Jesus must be saying here that he doesn't want me to have anything. I'm not supposed to have anything because if I have anything, I can get attached to everything. And suddenly my mind is focused, my heart is wrapped around on all of these worldly possessions rather than the kingdom of God. And it's easy to look at this and swing the pendulum the other way. And Jesus is saying, no, no, no prosperity. Yes, yes, yes to poverty. But I don't think that's what Jesus is saying at all. What Jesus is saying is when things come into my hands in my life, I have to always stop and ask the question, what do I do with what I have? And I think one of the biggest mistakes that we as Christians make all the time is we are all so very good at getting all of our focus wrapped around the things of this world. We want all of our blessing to be wrapped up in what I get in this life. And listen, Scripture is jam-packed with promises that say if we are faithful to God, if we honor him with the first fruits, if we are generous toward others, if we sow good seeds, that God won't just bless us in eternity, but he will bless us in this life too. But let's talk about time and eternity for just a minute, because this is really important. 
Some of us, like, we think about how long our life might be if we were to live to be 90, 100 plus years old. And we think, wow, you know, for human standards, that's really long. Can I tell you something? Our life, even if we lived like Moses, to be 120 years old is nothing but a speck on the span of time. In eternity, excuse me, eternity. Time is nothing, our time on this earth is nothing compared to eternity. You have to think about what Jesus is saying here. He's talking about our possessions. And when he says, sell your possessions and give alms, alms were literally generous gifts to those who were less fortunate. And I think as Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, one of the things he's trying to bring balance to is that if I put all of my focus and all of my weight and all of my energy into the things of this earth, I've put a lot of investment in something that lasts this long when eternity is a whole lot longer. And Jesus is looking at these guys and he's teaching them a lesson of balance. My life here on earth has to be balanced with my rewards in eternity. If I sow good seeds here on earth, I'm going to reap a great harvest in eternity. Jesus is saying to them, don't just sow seeds that will last you for time. Sow seeds that will last you for all of eternity. He's bringing time and eternity into perspective. But I don't believe that Jesus is just swinging back the pendulum for the sake of being extreme here. I believe Jesus is trying to help his followers find balance. Now, same uh, chapter of Scripture, Luke chapter 12. We're going to go back a few verses now. Watch this. Luke 12 and verse 15. I love what Jesus says here. This is so good. Jesus said to them, take heed and beware of covetousness. Covetousness is where we want other people's possessions. We become envious, jealous, wanting our neighbor's possessions when we see the things that they have. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Then he spoke a parable to them. And when Jesus went into a parable, it was like everybody got quiet and listened in because it was a point that Jesus was trying to make. He said, the ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. Good for him. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater barns. And there I will store all my crops and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. And right there is a picture of the American dream. I've done well. I have a good yield for what I've done from my work. And not only do I have a barn in the back, but that barn started to get too small. So what did I do? I tore it down and I built a second barn and another barn after that so I could store up everything that I have. And when I stood there and looked at everything that I had built, by the way, the amount of times that I and my appear in that passage of scripture is awesome. And Jesus is trying to get their attention. But it's as if this parable, he's pointing out the idea that this man built his barns and he sits back and he looks at what he's built and says, oh, I've done well for myself. I have more than enough to last the rest of my life. Time to kick up my feet, eat, drink, and be merry and enjoy life. And that sounds a lot like what most of us are aiming to do. Now, I'm not putting anybody down. If you are retired, you want to retire, you're aiming to retire. I hope to do the same one day while still being useful to the kingdom of God. But the point is, Jesus is trying to make a point here about the idea of accumulating things so that we can just kick up our feet. Verse 20, but God said to him, watch this, you fool, for this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not, watch this, is not rich where? Toward God. 
Man, what a picture this is. Only Jesus could tell a story like that. So cool. What I love about this picture, though, when Jesus says, you know, that God looks at him and says, you fool, for this night, your soul will be required of you. Remember, earlier on, the last passage we read, Jesus was talking about storing up treasure in heaven, bringing a balance between what we do on earth with our eternal kingdom perspective. See, none of us know when our life is going to come to an end. None of us know when our soul will be required of us. But what we do know is that every single new day is a new opportunity to sow good seeds into something that's going to last a whole lot longer. And Jesus is trying to bring balance. He's not just preaching about poverty over here and then prosperity over here. He's coming back and saying, with every day of my life, I have to consider that my life is this small and eternity is this big. So sow eternal seeds. Store up treasure in heaven. Let my heart be, or my, my treasure be a reflection of where my heart is, where I'm continually generous to those around me, not just heating up things for myself. Everybody with me? Now, get this, and I want you to write this down if you're taking notes, because I love this. I don't know who said this first, but the worldly concept of prosperity is get all I can, can all I get, and sit on my can. (laughs) Get all I can, can all I get, and sit on my can. That's the exact picture of what Jesus was saying about this rich man who just stored up things for himself. But according to the words of Jesus, the person who aims for that kind of prosperity is a fool. Whoa. That literally means that you can look wise in the eyes of people in this world because of how much you've accumulated, yet God in heaven can look down at my accumulation and say, you fool. Don't you realize that you've been given this much time on earth? Why not start investing in things now that will outlast you? Man, we could stay there a whole lot longer. Jesus says, for this night your soul will be required of you. Man, Jesus right here, again, talking about the balance of time and eternity. So let's come back to the question. Is it more godly to live in poverty or prosperity? And the answer is neither. Godliness is not defined by my prosperity, and godliness is not defined by my poverty, but by where I choose to invest what I've been given in time that will reap eternal fruit. Meaning, we got to work that out, right? Because the answer can seem a little bit vague. Well, it's not poverty and it's not prosperity. It's somewhere in the middle. Life looks different for each and every one of us, but each and every one of us are going to stand before God for what we do with what he entrusted us with. And we have to choose in time to invest in something that will outlive us in eternity. Amen? All right. Now that brings us to a third question today. When I give... Should I really expect to receive? And again, we we already did the offering earlier. I hope you guys saw that. Like we're not taking an offering right now or anything like that. But this is where when we talk about this topic of prosperity, where sometimes it's okay, give to get, give to get. If you give this now, you'll get this much more tomorrow. You know, if you sow into my ministry, then you'll get a check in the mail. I don't know where it's going to come from or how it's going to get there or where you're going to find it. But that's what I'm saying because... Could sure use that offering. I mean, that kind of stuff, we hear those things all the time. When we talk about prosperity, it often comes back to people asking for money and saying, well, if you give, you will get. So let's ask the question again. When I give, should I really expect to receive? All right, Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. I love this verse of Scripture. 
I've heard this verse of scripture my whole life, and I've big time been looking forward to getting into this right now. This is what Jesus says in Luke 6, in verse 38. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be put into your bosom or your lap. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured Back to you. Now, you need to know that all of this that Jesus is saying here is all a reflection of the principle or the laws of sowing and reaping that go all the way back to the beginning of time in Scripture. Give, and it will be given. But here's the thing. I've heard that verse of Scripture used so many times throughout the course of my life without anybody explaining to me what it means when it says, a good measure pressed down, shaken together, and running over. And not only that, but for all of my charismatic Pentecostal brothers and sisters, I'm one of you. I grew up the way that you did. Like, we grew up hearing that, and we're like, man, the Lord is blessing me, pressed down and shaken together, and we don't even know what that means. Like, we, we quote it without having the slightest clue what Jesus is talking about there. I want to go a little bit deeper here because I think this is going to be helpful because Jesus is big time bringing balance to this, this conversation right here when he uses this illustration. When Jesus says, give and it will be given to you, a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will it be given back to you? The measure in which you give is the measure in which you will receive. When the scripture says, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, here's the picture. In Jesus' day, Jewish landowners who were growing wheat and other grains would harvest their grains and do one of two things. They would either leave wheat and grain behind for people who were poor or less fortunate to come and get some for themselves because they could not afford to buy it. Or they would harvest all of it and take a portion of what they had harvest, harvested and put it on the outskirts of their fields so that the poor and less fortunate could come and get some for themselves. So here's the deal. When Jesus says, a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, there was a very specific audience that knew what he was talking about. And some of the well-to-do people among the crowd that day might not have understood it. Because when they would come and bring their sacks to put wheat and grain in, they didn't want to have to make multiple trips, so they would bring one or two bags, and here's what they would do. They would begin to shovel that wheat into their bags. They would grab it, and they would shake it. They would shake it together as the air would come out from between those morsels of wheat. It would compress and go down, and they would press it down. So it's shaken together. It's pressed down, and then they'd go back, and they would do it again until their sacks were running over. And the thing you have to understand is that that picture and illustration that Jesus is using was understood by the poor and less fortunate because they came to get as much as they possibly could, and in order to get a lot, they had to shake it together, press it down until it was running over. All that Jesus is saying here is relative to those who were poor and less fortunate. Now listen, I'm not having a class battle this morning. I'm just saying that's who Jesus identified with when he said that. And the reason we have to understand this is because sometimes we will quote that scripture not understanding what Jesus meant. Jesus was talking to people who were always finding themselves in the position to receive. And I think sometimes when we start to focus in on a prosperity gospel that says it's all about giving to get, to get, to get, to get, to get, we always see ourselves as people who are in position to receive rather than people who are in position to get, to give. What's interesting about it is on one side of the scripture, Jesus is painting a picture of the poor and less fortunate. And when you're poor and less fortunate, it seems like you are always in position to get, to get, to receive, to receive because you don't have. But Jesus doesn't start out by saying give or excuse me, get, and then you'll be able to give. No, he says, give, 
and it will be given. What's he doing? He's drawing a dichotomy here. He's telling you that you might see yourself always in position to receive, but I want to change your mindset because God is generous, and if you want to be generous too, you will position yourself to receive so that you can continually be a blessing. Jesus is painting a picture here. And sometimes when we use that verse in a prosperity-oriented you know, kind of way, we miss the point of what Jesus is saying. Jesus is talking to those who are far from prosperous. Prosperity is not about being in position to receive all the time. It's choosing to give first so that I can be blessed and continue to be a blessing to others. And if you don't believe me, I'm going to illustrate it even further right now because Paul expounds on this idea even more. Acts chapter 20, watch this. Acts 20, Paul is talking to the elders of the Ephesian church, and he talks about being generous to those who are less fortunate. And look what he says. He says, I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Let's stay right there for just a moment because this verse of scripture that Paul is referring to or the quote he gives here of Jesus is kind of a mysterious verse in the Bible. And the reason why it's mysterious is because there's nowhere in the four gospels where Jesus says word for word, it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. But yet Paul here quotes Jesus. So this could have been a couple of things. This could have been Paul relaying the oral tradition of Jesus' teachings that came from the disciples, the apostles, or it could have been Paul's simple explanation of what Jesus just said about give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. Will people give back to you as you give in the same measure? I think what Paul is doing here is he's explaining the same thought that Jesus shared. But here's what's so cool about it. It's more blessed to give than it is to receive. We say this at Christmas a lot, right? Oh, I just want to be a blessing. You know, it's so much more blessed to give than it is to receive. But can we just like put our feelings on the table for a moment? Doesn't it always feel better than when, when you receive than when you give? Because you're like, look what I just got. Look what someone just gave me. Look what I've accumulated. And so often when we think about giving, we think about, well, if I give, I'm going to have less than what I started with. I don't feel blessed when I have less. But yet the concept here is so clear. It is more blessed to give than it is to receive. Can I just simplify this and tell you the simple truth that Paul is trying to express here? He's saying when you are in position to be the one who is always able to give, always able to provide, always able to bless, that's a whole lot greater than being in a position of the one who always is in need. And it goes back to what Jesus said. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. He's appealing to those who are always in need. And he says it's time for us to shift our mindset. God is generous. And if we want to have godly biblical prosperity, we have to first choose generosity. And if we will give, God will give back to us so that we can continue to be a blessing. I love that thought. How cool is that? I feel like Jesus is almost doing a little bit of chicken and egg right there. I mean, think about it. What came first, right? What comes first, me getting and then giving or me giving and then getting? So if I want to be a blessing, do I have to get first so that I can give? Or if I want to be a blessing, do I just choose, you know, get off the schneid and give first, believing that God's going to bless me so I can continue to be a blessing? That's the way Jesus taught it to people who were continually in position to receive. It's time to be generous. It's time to grow. It's time, time to become more like God. God is incredibly generous. His generosity knows no bounds. And if we want to experience godly prosperity, we have to understand it's not always about being the person who's looking to receive me, 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 get, 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 get. But it's choosing first to give. 
and it will be given to you. Good measure. Pressed down, shaken together, and running over. The way you give is the way it will come back to you. Why? So that you will be blessed to be a blessing to others. And godly biblical prosperity is somewhere in the middle of those two extremes. So finally, again, let's answer the question. When I give, can I expect to receive? The answer is yes. God said it at the outset of time, and Jesus said it all throughout his ministry. Scripture is clear that when I sow, I will reap. When I give, whatever we give will be given back to us. But godly prosperity is not defined by how much I receive, but rather my willingness to give and be a blessing. God is the ultimate giver, generous beyond all comprehension, and is wanting me to be just like him. But the way I grow in that is not by waiting for him to bless me, bless me, give me, give me. It's by first choosing give, and it will be given to you. God wants to bring balance to our mindset when it comes to this topic of prosperity. I want to say this to every person in the house today. We're not preaching an extreme gospel. God wants to bless your life. But the blessing of God comes when we choose to take on his nature and give, honor him, be generous to those around us, be a blessing to those around us. Why? Because when we're a blessing, he blesses us to continue to be a blessing to others. In closing this morning, Philippians chapter four is one of my favorite passages of scripture and many of us know it because in Philippians 4.13, you know, Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We love that verse, right? Because we take it and apply it to anything. But what's so great about it is if you actually go back and look at Paul's teaching in Philippians 4, this is what he says in verse 11. He says, not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am in to be content. Is it possible that godly prosperity is not defined by extreme wealth or extreme poverty, but extreme contentment? For I know how it is to be abased, to have nothing. And I know how it is to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. See, I think Paul discovered that the secret of a godly life is contentment. I've been in abundance and I've been in abasement, as Paul would say. I've been hungry and I've been stuffed. But my godliness is not defined by my prosperity or my poverty. It's defined by his strength at work in my life. It's defined by my dependence on him. So in closing this morning, I want to go right back to where we started. When Paul was teaching Timothy, this is what he says to him. He says, godliness plus prosperity and accumulation and stuff is great gain. He said, godliness plus contentment, Timothy, is great gain. In third John, when John wrote to his friend Gaius, and he said, I pray that you prosper even as your soul prospers. He prayed that amazing prayer of prosperity over his friends. And I don't think any of us, it's wrong for us to do, to do the exact same thing. I believe we should be doing that. But I love what he goes on to say, and we read it earlier. He says, For I rejoice greatly when, brethren, when you came and testified of the truth that is in you. Just as you walk in truth, I have no greater joy than to hear my children walk in truth. One of the reasons why the concept of prosperity has become controversial is because it's a secondary peripheral issue that oftentimes gets brought to the center and abused. 
But at the end of the day, if we choose to walk in God's truth first, we can experience God's blessing in every area of our life. Because Jesus wants to bring our lives back into balance. And when we look at the word of God, when we look at the word of God, we have to understand it's not to be abused and it's not to be neglected. It's to bring balance back to our lives. Amen. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? Father, I thank you for your blessing. I thank you for your goodness. I thank you that you love us. I pray this morning, Father, for every single person who might have a material question, a material need, something happening in their life and in their world that they walked in the door with today. I pray that you would remind them that you are the God to whom nothing is impossible. You want to meet all of our needs according to your riches and glory and that you want to show us just how much you love us. Father, when it comes to this topic, I know that for many of us it's a settled topic. For others of us, it's a topic that we have a lot of questions about. I pray that you would remind us, Lord Jesus, that you are trying to make us more into your image to be generous. And if we are a blessing to others, you will continue to bless us. And if we live our life with an open hand, you will put something in it so that we can bless those around us. I pray that we would walk this out with balance, not being extreme and not being neglectful, but understanding that you want us to lean on you and depend on you every single day of our lives in Jesus' name. With heads bowed for just one more moment, you might be here today and you might have come to church maybe even for the very first time and you hear a message where we talk about the topic of prosperity. And you think, Zach, I like the idea of God prospering my life, but I got so many other things happening that this is so secondary. It's not even a primary thing in my life right now. When John wrote those words to his friend Gaius, he said, there's nothing that makes me happier than to see that you are walking in truth. I want to tell you this morning that all the blessings of God lie on the other side of choosing to walk in his truth. The truth is that God loves you. He loves you so much that in the midst of your imperfection and sin, he sent Jesus, who is perfect, to die for your sins so that you could be forgiven and redeemed. And we can come into a relationship with God simply by saying yes to Jesus, believing he died for us, that through his sacrifice we were forgiven, and that God raised him from the dead, conquering death so that we could have a new life. I'm gonna pray a prayer here in just a moment, and I wanna ask everybody in the house just to wrap your heart around these words. Pray a prayer of your own with your own words, and just make a commitment in your heart to follow Jesus, because all the blessing of God lies on the other side of choosing to walk in his truth. I'm gonna pray a prayer right now, and I wanna invite you to find the words of your own. Father, I thank you that you sent Jesus to take my place on the cross and die for my sins. I thank you that I am forgiven because of his sacrifice. And I thank you that I have new life because of his resurrection. So today I choose to follow Jesus, to put my faith in Jesus in this life so that I can know you in eternity. I pray, God, that you would be with me, lead me, guide me as I walk with you and follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Before we go, in just a moment, if you made a decision to follow Jesus today and maybe you prayed that prayer and you meant it with everything inside of you, we're so glad that you did that. We would love to help you start your journey of faith. We have a little gift we'd love to give you. It's called The Next Seven Days. Just a little book we would love to put in your hand. There's two different ways you can get it. As soon as service is over, in just a moment, we're gonna have prayer teams right down here near the front of the platform. If you just wanna walk up to any one of our prayer teams and let them know you made a decision to follow Jesus, they'll put that book in your hand just to help you get started in your walk with God. If anybody needs prayer, that's why our prayer teams are here. 
If you need to go quickly at the end of service, just stop by the next seven days desk. It's right between the glass doors before you exit the building. Let the people there at the, at the desk know you made a decision to follow Jesus and you want to get that book. We'll give it to you and help you get started in your walk with God. God bless you. We're so glad you made that decision. Can we put our hands together and welcome some people into God's family today? Awesome. Hey, we love you guys. Have a wonderful Sunday. Have a great Memorial Day weekend. We'll see you in the house next Sunday.